So in this questioning that we've been doing over the past week, we've been probing, looking deeply, listening deeply, into the very matrix of what we might call our life, or simply life, this curious and endlessly puzzling show of things, this rising and passing away of thoughts, of sounds, of sensations in the body, of feelings, of emotions, of happiness, of sadness, of boredom, of elation, all of it, as it were, pouring forth gratuitously as a kind of gift. On the surface, at first glance, for no apparent reason, we don't particularly ask our lives to be the way they are, at least in each moment, it simply pours forth. When I speak to you, or when you have a conversation with somebody else, you may be sometimes surprised at where do the words come from. I'm not uh, reading from a text. I've got a few notes down here. It says questioning, hyphen, the matrix of life. <laughs> But strangely, when I read or glance at that little note to myself, I find that other words, which I've no sense whatsoever of preparing, somehow come out of my mouth. And it is very odd. It is quite strange. And when we, we have a conversation with a friend, um, we're asked a question... It's quite remarkable sometimes what we hear ourselves saying. And this seems to be true with everything, really. Certainly as we, we ask ourselves, what is this? Or maybe we don't ask that particular form of words. We simply pay attention to what is arising and vanishing in the moment. We have no control over what the next thought will be, what the next sensation in the body will be, what the next bird sound will be. And as we still the mind and open our attention and just wait, just listen, just attend, then we somehow find ourselves that much Closer, that much more intimate with this curious outpouring of life. One thing triggering and stimulating the next and the next and the next. And this in technical language is what the Buddha called uh, paticca samutpada, dependent origination, codependent arising, what I like to call just contingency the unfolding of contingent events one dependent on the other with no ultimate ground from which they spring at least not one that we can discern as we look into the origins of things we just find more causes going further back, further back, further back, further back ad infinitum really we look inside what we call the mind and we find likewise the same, just a kind of endless regress of thoughts, of perceptions, of feelings. And those of you familiar with Vipassana, Satipatthana type practice of mindfulness will be familiar with how the Buddha's um, uh, practice is very much one of of simply paying attention to what's being seen, heard, smelled, tasted, touched. The Buddha's not pointing at some privileged object, some privileged 
a thing he might call mind, and certainly not mind with a big M. He certainly never mentions anything that we could translate as God. And yet, as the tradition develops, as Buddhism interacts with other traditions, very often these kinds of ideas resurface again. But I feel personally that the Buddha was was deeply suspicious, was deeply um, wary of introducing any kind of, of privileged object. It's very common in every Buddhist school, Theravada, Tibetan, Zen, all of the schools, they all make quite a fuss out of this idea of reality being divided between uh, the relative truths of the world, the conventional uh, appearances of, of life. And yet somehow deeper down somewhere, there's an ultimate truth, a paramatyasatya, or absolute truth, uh, some kind of deeper reality. But what's curious in reading the early canon in Pali is that the Buddha never once uses those words. Not once. It seems very shortly after his death that way of thinking came in from his followers. Personally, I think it was a kind of it was the first step back into the Indian way of thinking. It's very close, really, to the idea of Brahman or the or God, some kind of absolute transcendent reality. And then Maya, the world of illusion, the world of appearance. And possibly the reason the Buddha resisted any language that split the world like that was because he felt that that would slip us back into a kind of religious thinking that is not only characteristic of his own time, of Brahmanical uh, thought in the 5th century BC, but I think is also somehow... It, I think it somehow almost intuitively seems to be like that to us. There's the surface reality of things, there's my, the way I appear to people in the world, but then there's you know, who I really am, the me that I know, maybe my closest friends know, behind the screen of appearance. The human mind, I think, has a, an almost inveterate tendency to to split into appearance and reality between um, the, uh, the ground or source of things and their appearance. And yet, curiously, the Buddha never uses that language. For him, there is simply this, uh, this endless, beginningless play of fluctuating thoughts, feelings, perceptions. He's always breaking things down. He resists speaking very much in terms of, say, body and mind. Instead, he uses this curious five-fold idea of the five aggregates. Body, feelings, perceptions, impulses, consciousness. You take any one of them, he breaks it down further. There's a deep sense of of the plurality of things, the diversity of things, the differentiation of things. He understands wisdom, prasnya, not as some intuition into some kind of unity or oneness or wholeness, but rather the capacity of the mind to finally differentiate, to, 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 to see the complexity, the multiplicity, the diversity of things. And I feel in Zen, when we ask ourselves this question, and I forget about Zen, when we ask ourselves these, this kind of, in a way, kind of fundamental question, what is this? Who am I? What's going on? What's it all about? Alfie, as they say in song. <laughs> we suspend all of our habits of mind that think, 
or assume that there's some deeper reality under the ground somewhere, some ground of being or some true mind or one mind somehow tucked behind the surface of the, the flickering consciousness that we call me. And we simply open ourselves to this, this outpouring, this flux. And that, I feel, that very process comes close to what we mean by Buddha nature. Now, Buddha nature is also a term the Buddha doesn't use in the early tradition. It comes quite some centuries later. But when Dogen, who's the founder of the Japanese Soto uh, lineage, in his uh, Shobo Genzo, which is a rather difficult treatise he wrote, there's a passage in there called uh, Busho, Buddha Nature, and Dogen asks himself, what is this Buddha Nature? And he replies, uh, Buddha Nature is, what is this thing and how did it get here? In other words, he quotes the very line from Huineng to Huaijiang that I gave earlier in the retreat, and that for him is Buddha nature. Buddha nature has become a very attractive idea. And we often, I think, find certain, a certain kind of solace in the idea of Buddha nature, that somewhere, again, beneath the appearance of my confused, deluded self, there is a kind of little Buddha waiting to get out. <laughs> tucked away inside somewhere. And Buddhist tradition, in many ways, reinforces that sense. Uh, there's a famous Indian text called the Ratnagota Vibhanga by a Sangha. The Buddha nature is compared to uh, the honey in the beehive, or the seam of gold that runs through the rock, or a golden image of the Buddha wrapped up in dirty cloth. And again you see this, I think, almost uh, inveterate tendency of the human mind when it thinks about these kinds of things to split into two. The gold in the rock, the honey in the hive, the Buddha nature in me. So, once again, what Dogen seems to be doing is... Is, is, is very much going against that uh, tendency to think of Buddha nature almost like a kind of a sanitized version of self, our true self, our soul, our Atman or something. That's not what it means at all for Dogen. But actually our Buddha nature, which we might loosely paraphrase as our capacity to wake up, our... our, our the ability we have to become Buddha, what that is, is effectively our ability to question who we are, to become a question for ourselves, to be able to sit here and ask ourselves, you know, what is this? What is going on? That, that movement of self-awareness into a questioning of the very being that is able to think and pose that question. That is Buddha nature. That is our capacity to wake up, to begin to question what's going on. Because we can do that, we can begin to shift and to change and to come to a very different way of understanding who we are, of what the world is, and of what's going on. So questioning is actually the, the trigger, the engine, the driving force of this organism that is able to be a questioning organism. That is what leads to waking up. But there's another problem with this idea of Buddha nature. And that is that in uh, Sanskrit, 
uh, in the Indian traditions, where the, wor- where the idea originated, there is no equivalent to the English word Buddha nature. We don't find it. Buddha Swabhava is what it would be. But it doesn't exist. So we might ask ourselves, well, why in English do we keep on reading about the Buddha nature? Why has it become such a, a common word? Curiously, it's a linguistic accident. The first books on, on Mahayana Buddhism, where we find this idea, were translated into English not from Sanskrit, but from Chinese, or Japanese probably, through the work of people like Suzuki. And the, um, the, the, Jap- 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 the Japanese term, which I think is Busho, I think it's Foshin in Chinese, does literally mean Buddha nature. And that then was translated quite accurately into English, and the idea took, it became a term that has now become so current we don't even question it. But one should perhaps already be a little bit suspicious because the Buddha and the Buddhist tradition tends to be rather suspicious of this notion of things having a true nature or an essence, the nature of something, the essence of something. One of the synonyms for the uh, Madhyamika school, which is the school that speaks of emptiness, is Niswabhavadin, those who uh, declare that there is no nature, not nature in the sense of birds and bees, but nature in the philosophical sense, got essential, some kind of essence or core to things. So what is the word then? that we find in the original text where Buddha nature is spoken of, it's Tathagata Garbha. There are several terms, but Tathagata Garbha is probably the most uh, used. So what does that mean? Tathagata is an altogether tricky idea. It's the word the Buddha uses to refer to himself. And it sometimes is not translated. It just says, the Tathagata the Tathagata, however you pronounce it. I think what it probably means is something like this one. It sometimes is translated as the thus come one, the thus gone one. But I think probably what that means is something like this one. In other words, the one who's speaking here. And Garba, in other words, it means the Buddha. And Garba doesn't mean nature or essence or anything remotely like that. It means womb. Tathagata Garbha means the womb of the Buddha. Now this is a very um, uh, curious uh, term for, for monks to choose. It's of a very different order to the idea of the essence or the nature of something. Likewise, when the Tibetans translated this word from Sanskrit, they didn't use the word um, womb either. Uh, which there's a perfectly good word for womb in Chinese and Tibetan, obviously. But they also, the Tibetans used, they, 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 they translated as deshin chekpe nyingbo. Nyingbo, nying means heart. Nyingbo means kind of like heart essence. But not womb. And I wonder why not. Perhaps the Chinese and the Tibetans were a bit squeamish. They thought it, maybe it sounded to them something like Buddha uterus. <laughs> but in any case, they didn't use it. But of course, womb is a metaphor of a whole other order to the rather abstract uh, philosophical notion of an essence. A womb is an, is, is an earthly image, and it's also a female image. It, it, it must sound quite shocking in a way. And also, if you think about it, a womb 
is actually just a space. It's a, it's a space that can be fertilized. It's a fertile space in which something can be impregnated and can grow and be nourished and be born. In other words, it's a profoundly uh, organic notion. It's, a, it's an image of, of, of impregnation, of nurturing, of gestation and birth. So in that sense, when we say Buddha nature, we're not talking of some little Buddha tucked away inside waiting to get out already full-formed, but rather, again, the fact that this organism, this extraordinary body-mind complex, is in some respects like a womb, a womb that can be seeded with an idea, or if we follow Dogen, a womb that can be impregnated with a question, what is this? And that question can then somehow be nourished, be nurtured, can grow, and in the end perhaps give birth to something, to something living, something breathing, something new, a child. And again, with the notion of womb, you, you, you break out of this assumption of there being something tucked away essentially at the core of ourselves that is, in some sense, detached or apart from the appearance of things. It's simply a way of talking about the capacity that this organism has. In the Tibetan traditions we actually find uh, you know, considerable diversity of views as to what constitutes Buddha nature or Tathagata womb. Some schools will think of it as some kind of deep um, fundamental nature of mind, which again suggests something hidden within us that's not yet realized. But we find in the, in the work of Tsongkhapa who's the founder of the Geluk school, who's a rather strict Madhyamika, that for him, Buddha nature, Tathagata Garbha, is simply the emptiness of the person. It's shunyata, emptiness. So again, he's... And again, if you think about it, a womb is an emptiness, literally. There's nothing in it until it is impregnated. But it's a space... For Tsongkhapa, the emptiness of the person, which is a rather technical term, means the fact that each person is lacking in any kind of intrinsic ego identity, any kind of essential self, any kind of essential being. That the person is not a thing. There's not a kind of essential Stephen as it feels very vividly to be the case, somehow behind the sh running the show here. That might appear to be the case, and it might appear that that's something that never changes. But as we explore and inquire into the nature of our experience, that breaks down. We can't find that. The more we look, the more this solid sense of me begins to evaporate. It eludes us. We find that our experience is elusive, enigmatic, ambiguous, unpin-downable. The Dalai Lama uses this expression, uh, which means there's nothing you can put your finger on. There's nothing you can point to and say, that's me. There is simply again revealed a play of possibilities. So the reason we can become Buddha, we can wake up, is because there's not any kind of essential me that is stuck in place. That it's because we are empty, because we are contingent and impermanent and fluid. That, and that alone, is adequate to 
allow the possibility of transforming ourselves, of, of, of evolving, of becoming Buddha, becomes a possibility. It becomes something we can do. We don't have to posit anything other than the very structure of the organism itself to understand what Buddha nature means. So it's not anything hidden away. It's simply the way we are structured. Another sense of the word Buddha nature, um, and again another of the Sanskrit terms, which is also the one that's commonly used in Tibetan, is Buddha Gotra. Now Gotra, again, doesn't mean nature. It actually means lineage or family. In other words, there's an acknowledgement that each person is not only somehow capable of, of waking up, of evolving, of transforming, of growing, but also that that process occurs according to a certain kind of typology, that we find ourselves in a certain family. In the Vajrayana, they speak of the Buddha families. So it's also suggestive that our awakening will follow somehow according to our, our natural disposition or temperament. A person who's more, let's say, outgoing, concerned with the world, would be called a bodhisattva of the bodhisattva family. A person who's rather independent and figures things out for him or herself without reference to other teachers or communities or traditions is said to be of the Pratyeka Buddha Gotra, of the family of the, of the solitary awakened ones. And then you have the Shravaka Gotra, the family of those who, who follow teachers, who are disciples, who are hearers, literally, and so on. And again, the notion of family, the notion of lineage, the notion of womb, they're all very much of the same order, the same kind of idea, all of which suggesting birth and growth and growing up and changing and evolving, but not a metaphysics of some kind of hidden essence or hidden nature that we are. And I think it's this capacity to... Um, to never be the same for two consecutive moments, to always be um, on the cusp of being able to act differently or say something unprecedented or to respond in an unexpected way. That, in a sense, I feel, is also what this questioning, this Buddha nature, is leading us to. It's a question very much of, of learning to respond to life. Again, the notion of Buddha nature to me is somehow passive, somehow static. Whereas here, when we ask a question, we are poised in this open, waiting, listening, attentive, still space. Not because that is a kind of as that state of mind has any intrinsic virtue of its own, but the virtue of such a questioning, open, curious state of mind is that it's, in, it's optimally prepared to respond to the next moment rather than just to react to it in an habitual way. And so I think the challenge, really, uh, in the idea of Buddha nature is actually to embody a response to our life. We've been doing this in a very, uh, in, in a very kind of, uh, in, a, in, in a silent retreat, um, focusing on our own experience, working with a question, you know, what is this? And opening ourselves to the possibility of a response. And again, I 
like to distinguish between a response and an answer, which has a certain finality to it, a certain slightly dogmatic quality to it. A response is something living. And when we read these Zen koans, it's very much, I think, each of them is a story about a response. So when Huai Neng says, what is this thing and how did it get here? Huai Zhang is speechless. He then goes into meditation, he lives in the monastery, and then finally he, he finds a response to that, not an answer. And the response is, to say it is like something is not to the point. The point here is that that is Huai Zhang's response. To just mimic that ourselves would be rather silly. And what's striking about the koan collections, the collections of these different dialogues, is that each monk or nun or layperson responds in a way that is peculiar to his or her situation in that moment. So when Nan Chuan relates to Chao Chu the story of the cat, and he says, well, what would you have done? And Chao Chu picks up his sandals, puts them on his head and walks to the door. That was Chao Chu's response. This hardly constitutes an answer. <laughs> and of course, we don't know the specificity of those two men's relationships. We don't know what that would have meant in that context. It was something very intimate, I would suspect, between the two of them. And that, I think, is the case in most of these koans. And if we just take this one step further now and go back into the lives we'll be returning to for many of us tomorrow, then we can perhaps begin to think that every life situation is a koan. Again, Dogen is good on this. Dogen talks about the genjo koan, which translates as something like the koan of everyday life. Because really the koans are not these enigmatic little chinese questions. But the real koan, the only koan actually, is this. Is this moment. Is this particular configuration of my life in relation to a world, in a society, in a culture. This particular moment. So when we go back into, let's say, a relationship we have with our partner, or our parent, or our child, and the child asks us a question, or we're confronted with a problem, a conflict, that is our koan. That is the question that life is putting to us in that moment and calling for us to respond. Every moment in life is a koan, every, particularly every, every problematic situation. And let's face it, these things do occur, problematic situations. And they're the things we often spend the most time thinking about, worrying about, obsessing about. And what this practice, I think, is preparing us for is to respond to that situation with the same kind of openness, the listening, the waiting, the attention, the questioning, the puzzlement, the sense of the oddness of the situation, and to respond, to respond from our Buddha nature, our Tathagata Garbo, to give birth to something from us in a way that is appropriate to that situation, in a way that perhaps illuminates and even resolves that situation. There's a wonderful koan. I think it's attributed to Yunmen, who is one of the later Tang Zen masters in China. And a disciple asks him, what is the highest teaching of the Buddha? And Yunmen replies, an appropriate statement. Not any particular teaching, but something that is appropriate to that moment. Let's say, for example a friend comes to us in a state of distress and 
tells us all their problems. And it's very heart-rending. We, we really sympathize and empathize with the pain that that person is suffering. Now, what do we do there? Do we simply trot out some kind of Buddhist platitude? Well, it's all impermanent. And, <laughs> and it'll go away, and you should just sort of be calm. And, or do we trot out some little gem of psychotherapeutic wisdom? You should be more in touch with your feelings. <laughs> or do we respond in a way that's not coming from our stock repertory of, um, of um, the wisdom of other people, but actually comes from ourselves, and comes in such a way that perhaps it shocks us, it surprises us. We find ourselves rather puzzled as to how I could be saying this rather intelligent thing. And also this, this very caring gesture. So the responding to the koan is not about a form of words. If anything, it is an action. It may be words, but it might be reaching out to the other person, holding the other person. It might be doing something that we can't really foresee, like Chao Chu putting his sandals on his head and walking out the door, <laughs> or the, the modern equivalent thereof. In other words, something kind of unpredictable but appropriate, that's appropriate for that moment, so that Buddhism or Zen or any of these traditions cannot give us the answer to what we should do when X happens. Religions like to think they've got the answers to everything. They like to compile lots and lots of precepts and rules and, 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 and teachings. And we sometimes have the idea that if I, I could learn all of that, if I could memorize it all, then when I encounter the next difficult situation, I just have to go through my, my inner database. And if I'm quick enough, I'll come up with the right answer. It's a very, it's a very seductive way of thinking. And I think all religions, Buddhism and all the others, have exhibit that tendency to somehow try to codify what, in fact, the good, virtuous, wholesome, enlightened way of living is. We can't do that because, unfortunately, or I think very fortunately, situations in life are unique. Um, there are no... There are principles, like not killing, not stealing, not abusing, and so on, which are, of course, very important. But the principles are fairly useless in telling us what I am to say to Mary when she comes to me in three weeks and one day's time telling me of the problem of her child at school, or whatever it might be. <laughs> that life is, consists of, of, of situations and moments that are unprecedented, they've never happened before in that particular way, and they will never happen again like that either. Likewise, my, my relation to that situation will again be something unique. So there's no, there's, there's no database to which I can refer. There's no, there's no one out there who can tell me what to do. I mean, there are people, there's actually a lot of people who would be very happy to tell you what to do. <laughs> but in a way, I think that is, uh, is somehow inauthentic. It's passing the bar. Uh, in, in the Tibetan tradition, you have this idea of throwing mows, or throw, it's a sort of throwing dice. The lama will throw the dice and say, oh, actually, yes, you should do this or do that. I've always, I've never, I never did that when I was a Tibetan monk. I thought it was completely at odds with everything the Buddha said. Because surely the, 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 the practice is not, it's not just to believe the truths of Buddhism, but it is actually to somehow put them into action 
in response to the specificity of the particular nature of your life in this world, here and now. And this, I feel, is also something rather akin to what we might call a creative process, or creativity. That when you work as a a writer, or a painter, or a musician, or, or in any of those fields, again, you find yourself confronted with the same, with exactly the same, Koran-like situation. The Koran of the writer is what Hemingway used to call the horror of a blank sheet of paper. (laughs) Nowadays it's usually a computer screen. But coming into your office or your workspace, and again I speak from my own experience as a writer, you sit there and the first thing in the morning you have certainly any number of ideas and, and, and so forth of what it is that you have, what, 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 what you're going to say, what you're going to write. But of course, you never know. When I sit down at my desk at nine o'clock in the morning, and I know I'm going to finish at lunchtime at one, at nine o'clock, I do not know what is going to be on that page four hours later. In a very rough sense, I'm going to take, I'm going to develop an argument or tell a story about this or that. But how that's going to play out, I don't have a clue. And it's a very curious thing. It's a bit like speaking. That very often I find myself in this kind of hesitancy, just sitting there, contemplating the screen, and kind of waiting, kind of waiting for something to happen and also fearing doing something. Sometimes it's quite scary for some weird reason and suddenly it becomes imperative that I reorganise the books on my bookshelf (laughs) (laughs) behind me, which has, of course, got nothing whatsoever to do with what I'm supposed to be doing anything but making that gesture, making that act of, in in this case, tapping on a keyboard and a line of letters appearing on the screen. But once you've done that, once you've taken that step, once you've responded, then the process begins to unfold. And one also knows, I certainly know, that sometimes I don't respond to the blank screen. I fill it up with ideas that are not really my own, a kind of derivative um, trotting out of things that I think are according, you know, the, the right thing to say according to what my friends might think or what Buddhism should dictate. I feel again and again constrained by my perceptions of other people, my fantasies of writing a great novel, my um, reluctance, my fear perhaps to say what I really feel. That there's so much at work that is somehow inhibiting that uh, free creative act in which something is produced that has never existed quite in that way before. So by one in the afternoon, at lunchtime, on a good day, I have a page or so um, of text um, that is not necessarily brilliant or highly original, but still it is something that has been brought into being. Something that four hours before did not exist in any sense. Writing is not, for me, a kind of transcription of my brilliant thoughts onto paper at all, but it's actually the, the triggering of a, a movement within me, 
and the unfolding from that movement in a highly unpredictable way of something that then becomes public, something that then is there for others to read, to like, to dislike, to agree with, to disagree with, to admire, to revile. It's there now. It's not mine anymore. I've somehow given it away. And curiously, the idea of bringing something into being is the literal meaning of the word that's usually translated as meditation. Bhavana. Bhavana, we talk of metta-bhavana, for example, uh, the cultivation of metta. But bhavana has come to mean, in most Buddhist cultures, simply meditation. So it's a very, very confusing and inaccurate translation. It means to bring into being. The Buddha described the Eightfold Path as that which is to be brought into being, not to be meditated on, as it's sometimes translated, but the view, thought, speech, action, livelihood, resolve, mindfulness, concentration. These are are things, the, 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 these are qualities of life that the Buddha encourages us to bring into being, to create, to give birth to. So again, we come back to this same idea of wombs and seeds and gestation and birth. And all of this is processual. It has to do with somehow participating, engaging in the very flow of our lives. And that for me is what... Oh, the tape's gone out. <laughs> uh, and that, I feel, is very much what we mean by practice. It's this, it's this on the one hand, about opening ourselves to our life, maybe questioning and inquiring deeply into what it is, this thing, stilling, calming, becoming clearer in our minds. But that is not the end or the aim of the exercise. That's not what it's all about at all. That is not the, the goal of one's practice, but that is actually the place where one's practice then begins. The Buddha is very clear about this. That the Eightfold Path is not some kind of rule of thumb for lay Buddhists, a kind of you know, introductory um, lesson in what Buddhists do. But the Eightfold Path is actually what only opens up after you have entered the stream, after you have somehow glimpsed what it is in fact you are as a contingent, fluid, empty, open being full of possibilities to be realized, when you know that deeply, then you enter the path. And that's, of course, what's often thought of as enlightenment. But enlightenment, if we understand it that way, is actually the beginning of the process, not the end. The the process, the living of the path, the embodying, the bringing into being of those qualities is what constitutes the practice. That's what, it's, that's what in a sense, we are preparing ourselves or somehow setting ourselves the task of achieving, of accomplishing. And it's a constant challenge. It never stops until the day we die. And I'll stop there. Thank you. Um, if anyone has a, a, a comment or a question, we have some minutes. Um, 
question regarding the question uh-huh. when I was a child um, can you hear me from that? yeah yeah sure we as children used to giggle like the elders we used to talk to themselves uh-huh. and uh, sometimes we ask them what about the people in the street who used to talk loudly to themselves uh-huh. and they would say don't worry about it darling they're crazy <laughs> just keep away from them and um, now as an adult, I've noticed my own children talking to themselves. And I don't think that's unique to them. And uh, what meditation has made me uh, aware is that there is a constant brainwash chatter that keeps going on. Uh-huh. And um, since then, I've heard so many, so many suggestions about the deal with it. I don't, I don't, I don't speak loudly to myself, not in company anyway. <laughs> but, but I realize that this, you know, this constant chatter goes on, nonstop, mm-hmm. um, varying from canicimo to fortissimo. Mm-hmm. Doesn't even stop in bed because I dream at night, and I've been told that there's such a thing as a dreamless sleep. Mm. I've never been aware of it myself. How would you be? <laughs> 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 Well, it's the, it's the bubbling of life itself, really, isn't it? Um, but again, I think it's the sort of thing about which we should question and, and perhaps come to some response to that ourselves. Um, but yeah, I would see it as the sort of the, the, the white noise of experience, of life. The ambient chatter of the brain. It's, this, it's, this just, it's just the stuff. It's the stuff of our existence. Uh, it's just the... Uh, it's like a sort of bubbling ferment of possibility. But again, the, that's, that, that, that's my answer. But the one that matters is yours. Whatever that might be. Thank, thank you.